for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord according to St. Luke. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I mean, maybe you know this already. Not everybody does. In fact, a lot of people go through their whole lives never giving it much thought. I'm sure you're not among them. Nevertheless, I'd like to suggest that this one little thing is driving much of the strife in our social and political life, not to mention our own personal lives. So... If you don't know, you need to know. Change is difficult. Now, I mean, at some level, I, I guess we, we all understand this, right? I mean, but you know how I know this? The grocery store. That's right, and the grocery store. I mean, have you ever gone into the grocery store, you went to find something that you've dropped in your cart a thousand times before, and it is nowhere to be found? This is always where the lima beans are. Why are there no lima beans? Hey, wait a minute, there, there aren't any beans. There's no corn, no mushrooms, no beets, there's nothing. Now they got the Cap'n Crunch and the honey bunches of oats where the stewed tomatoes are supposed to be? This is ridiculous. I can't find anything. Where's the manager? Whether it's as simple as not being able to find the corned beef hash at the Kroger or adjusting to life without your best friend, change can be annoying in the less important instances. And let's just be honest, downright traumatic and overwhelming in the most important. Of course, change can also be a good thing. I mean, if you've been beating your head against the wall, stopping can feel like heaven, right? 
But usually, even good change causes some anxiety. I mean, getting married is, is, is wonderful and exciting, but even so, it's a pretty nervy experience committing yourself to another person until death do us part, right? Miss Havisham, who's the jilted spinster, uh, spinster in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, she makes this great uh, heroic attempt to freeze time, sort of crystallizing in amber her disappointment at being left at the altar as a young woman. And one of the great characters she is of, of, of English literature, Miss Havisham, upon being told 20 minutes before she's supposed to be wed that her fiancé has defrauded her, asks that the, all the clocks in the house be stopped. And thereafter, she refuses to change out of her wedding gown. She lets the wedding cake fossilize on the table where it was set on that day in anticipation of the great event. See, Miss Havisham lives with the determination that, which is sort of some perverse need to hold on to the past, nothing in her life will change. She's, she's determined. She needs to exert some control over life that has spun out of control. It's the grand scale of her quixotic attempts to preserve everything is exactly as it had been at the most important moment in her life that makes her such an important and memorable literary figure. That she attempts to exert control by trying to stop time, however, isn't particularly exceptional. I mean, human beings are amazingly partial to the idea of freezing moments, both the good and the bad, as a hedge against change. I mean, humans tend to find comfort in a past that they've survived rather than a future about which they do not yet know. Seth Godin drives home the point, suggesting that for many of us, the happiest future is the one that's precisely like the past, only a little better. Now, we've seen this aversion to change in our own culture. I mean, it's painful to watch. It's painful to experience. The demographics in the country are undergoing a seismic shift. Various projections have the United States becoming a majority-minority country in the next 20 to 30 years. According to the Pew Research Center, more Americans than not believe that having a diverse and inclusive population is good for everybody, but there's a significant minority, almost a fourth of the population, who are convinced that such a shift is going to be a bad thing. The projection of a demographic shift isn't new. I mean, we've seen this coming for a long time. To be honest, it's, it's possible to read the political and social turmoil of the past five years with the rise of white supremacy and its hope for a more authoritarian rule through that very lens of the fear of change. I mean, there are enough people who are motivated by the terror that black and brown people will e be equally represented in what has historically been a majority white country so much so that they've gone to the great lengths to try to reassert sort of white dominance. To restore something that they feel like they've lost. 
This fear of a more diverse future has caused a great deal of nostalgia for a world that once was decidedly more favorable to white, middle-class, heterosexual, cisgender people. I mean, the whole again in Make America Great Again has always been about a return to a world where everybody knew their place, a world where everyone knew who was supposed to sit at the top of the pecking order. So in the face of such disorienting change, a sizable number of people have looked to a previous age to regain some, some sense of, a, of control over the future, which is to say they've, they've opted for a future that's precisely like the past, only you know, maybe a little bit better, like with jetpacks or something. But hanging on to the past, it's a common way of trying to, to create a barrier between the change that threatens our control and a past that feels safe. Today's the first Sunday after the Epiphany, which means Baptism of Jesus Sunday. That day every year about this time where our Gospel lesson focuses on Jesus and John the Baptist and their little confab down by the Jordan River. Now, we've talked a lot about John the Baptist over the past month. I mean, he's the main player in the second and third weeks of Advent. And as we've noted, a pretty peculiar figure right before Christmas, all dressed up in leather and barbed wire. What's the message on the tip of John's tongue always? Repentance, right? When people think about their favorite characters in Scripture, John the Baptist, I imagine, isn't at the top of anybody's mock draft. I mean, he's abrasive. You know, he's talking about repentance and wheat and chaff and unquenchable fire. And it's not hard to see why people cross over to the other side of the street when they see John coming, is it? I mean, repentance is a word that's fallen into disfavor <coughs> among the, the sophisticated. It, it, it raises too many images of oblivious street preachers shouting at people through bullhorns. Too many resonances of professional scolds like, like, like Franklin Graham and James Dobson sort of gleefully playing the part of God's hypervigilant hall monitors. We've been taught that repentance is a more formal way of being made to feel bad about failing to live up to God's picky and exacting standards. And who needs that, right? I mean, we already live in America in 2022. We don't need extra prompting from God's most indefatigable goons to feel bad. But see, repentance isn't primarily about mustering the appropriate levels of remorse. Repentance, as the Bible uses it, is about committing oneself to turning one's back on the previous path and then heading out in a new direction. It's about turning away and turning toward. As Ron Allen has pointed out, to repent is to turn away from complicity with the old age and its values and behaviors and turn toward the coming realm. 
Furthermore, Alan explains that baptism, the baptism that follows repentance, that, uh, that John the Baptist preaches about, it gives the baptized a, a, a physical assurance that their final destiny is no longer determined by the brokenness of the old age and its heinous rulers, but will be the realm of God. See, baptism is an invisible mark <coughs> initiating those who receive it into a community that's anticipating God's new realm. In Jesus, <coughs> God is busy preparing a new world where, where justice and peace anchor our common life. Where the old world sustains itself on the pain and exploitation of the weak and defenseless and the blood of innocence, the new world promises not just a release from oppression, but lives shaped by compassion and mutual respect. Repentance is our decision to turn away from the old world and toward the new. And baptism is our constant reminder that this turning isn't just a one-time decision. It's a continual choice against the world that benefits the few at the expense of the many and for a world in which all God's children have a ticket to the ball. And so John is out in the wilderness crying out <coughs> about how every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked made straight and the rough made smooth. And he's talking about the axe lying at the root of the tree with the threat that every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the people who've gathered to hear John, they, they start mumbling to themselves. You know, thinking, you know, not to be party poopers or anything, but I mean, if all that's true, then what exactly are we supposed to do about it? The tax collectors and the military, they come to him and they say, you know, we got, we got a kind of a big stake in the old world. In fact, we get to help make the rules in the old world. I mean, if all that's going to come crumbling down, what are we supposed to do about it? Now, what does John say? In preparation for this new realm, you could start by, oh, I don't know, renouncing the practices of the old realm. Quit using the system to cheat people out of their money. Quit using power to dominate and bully your neighbors. That, but that'd be a pretty good place to start. Now, of course, by this time, the whole crowd is mulling it over. I mean, on the one hand, the old realm is pretty awful, and the new one sounds like a lot better place. But on the other hand, at, at least we know how the old realm works. And change is, is difficult especially if we have a lot invested in the way things used to be and are afraid that what comes next might reshuffle the deck in a way that doesn't leave us holding all the cards. This is the scene that John faces when Jesus wanders onto the scene And he volunteers to be the first one to abandon the old realm in, the favor, in favor of the new one. Now, let me just point something out. If, if repentance and baptism are merely about feeling appropriately guilty, having Jesus show up on the scene looking to get dunked doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? 
I mean, what does Jesus need to feel guilty about? But if repentance and baptism are about turning away from complicity with the old age and its values and behaviors and turning toward the coming realm, then having Jesus be the first one into the water makes all sorts of sense. See, Jesus doesn't just tell us to do something. He shows us the way. So Jesus walks into the river. And what happens? What happens after Jesus takes that first step into the water? Submitting himself to the waters of baptism. What happens then? Well, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form. Now, taken together in modern times, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Spirit have been understood as sort of the culmination of the salvation process. You express remorse, you get baptized, the Holy Spirit fills you, and now you don't have to worry any longer about hell. Kind of a down payment on the next life. But, I mean, if that's the case, then why does Jesus need to undergo this ritual? I mean, what exactly does Jesus need to feel remorse for? What does Jesus need saving from? You see what I mean? See, I would like to suggest to you that while, yes, this is a passage about salvation, most certainly, it isn't primarily about performing a ritual that ultimately makes God less mad at us only so we get to go to heaven after we die. I'm not saying that's not important. I'm just saying that that's not the only focus. This passage about Jesus' baptism is about us taking our place alongside Jesus and turning away from the old age and toward a new age where the Holy Spirit descends upon us so that we may faithfully embody the values and behaviors that God imagined when God created us in the first place. See, and that's the thing. The Holy Spirit descends on us not as a means of taking us out of this world, but of helping us understand and become who we are in it. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form, and when the Holy Spirit descends on us, we become the desire of God for the new realm in, in bodily form. Our repentance and baptism mean that we are now the embodiment of God's hope for a new world. While so many around us are trying to freeze the past in amber, a past where some people were important and well cared for and others were just the object of scorn, our repentance and our baptism has placed us as a, as a giant neon sign in the middle of the old realm pointing towards God's desired future in the new one. But see, we're not only signs of the new realm, we're called to do the signs of the new realm. We're called not just to point toward justice and peace, but to be people who embody justice and peace. We're not just given the task of telling people about God's grace and compassion. We're given the responsibility of extending God's grace and compassion to our neighbors. Even the ones 
perhaps especially the ones with whom we wouldn't be caught dead on a Saturday night. See, we're not living into a future that's the same as the past, only a little bit better. We're living into a future that looks disruptive and scary for people who've benefited from an oppressive past, but that looks like heaven to those who've lived their whole lives as targets at worst or who've been rendered invisible at best. The Holy Spirit descends and we're transformed into God's desire for a new world in bodily form. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.